You are listening to a Pleasure Podcast. For more from our Sex Podcast Collective, visit PleasurePodcasts.com. Hello, my friends. Welcome to American Sex. Yeah, a podcast dedicated. Okay, I just, it's boring. It's saying the same thing every single week, but you know the drill. Welcome to American Sex, a podcast dedicated to normalizing conversations about pleasure and alternative sexual expression by challenging those puritanical backward ass ideals we have here in the United States. I had I had to get sing songy. It's just I'm at that point in quarantine. I'm at that point in quarantine. I don't have an explanation for it. This is just what's happening now. So this is episode 130 of American Sex Podcast. I am Sonny Megatron. Okay, I'll stop. That's the last time I promise. Uh, my co-host is Ken Melvoin-Berg, who you'll be hearing from in a few minutes. We're both sexuality educators, pleasure advocates, and kinky perverts too. This week, we are learning about attachment styles with Ida Mandalay. Ida Mandalay LCSW is an award-winning Latinx activist, facilitator, and presenter known for big earrings and tackling taboos. Their politics are radical, their life is ridiculous, and their penchant for irreverence as intimacy is notorious. Trained as a sexuality educator, social worker, and nonprofit executive, they're working to make the world a more equitable place and get us all more comfortable with hard conversations and singing. I don't know about the singing part. I just added that in. With a focus on liberation and communities marginalized due to race, gender, and sexuality, their perspective aims to maximize kindness while retaining both a sense of humor and a sense of justice. They are well known for their leadership with the Women of Color Sexual Health Network, as well as various other national and regional coalitions. Okay. You need this conversation in your life, but not my singing. Really, I'm serious, especially right now. You know, we're in quarantine, right? With our loved ones and those little annoying things that we have with the people we love are illuminated more than ever. If you're rubbing up against each other like sandpaper, knowing about your attachment styles may help. This episode did me more good than a week of therapy, and I am not kidding. Ida walks us through what attachment theory is and how it impacts our daily lives. It turns out the ways we connect with other people as adults are all influenced by how we related to our caregivers when we were kids. Ida also adapts attachment theory to non-monogamous relationships, tells us how they affect the way we behave in the bedroom, how they're impacting our relationships specifically in quarantine, and how BDSM role play can be used to explore and process our attachment styles or the attachment styles of our partners. Ida also gives us specific exercises you can do right now today to help you relate to your partners better. So there's one thing I want to mention. 
When we recorded this, Ken was out quarantine shopping. You know how that is, right? And at this point, we didn't realize how much longer all of his errands were going to take with, you know, capacity limits and stores and lines outside the door. So he ended up coming into this conversation a few minutes late. So rather than edit out Ida's recap of the conversation we had before he stepped in, I just decided to leave it in. It turned out to be a really nice recap of what they had discussed up until that point. I thought you'd benefit from it. Also, there's one thing I've learned while sheltering in place, and that is the polished version of myself I try to present to the world is a fallacy. Uh, you're going to get the real us uncut and uncensored with singing too. I I just don't give a shit anymore. Anyway, before we get to all that realness, you know, we've got a little housekeeping to do, or as we call it, ball washing. First, I'm teaching a couple of classes for Sugar Baltimore online in early June. Both prostate play and long distance BDSM are the two classes. Check the show notes for episode 130 at americansexpodcast.com for the links to those sessions. Also, if you didn't hear, we have an American Sex Podcast Discord server now. Now, I've told a lot of people about this, and a lot of people are like, Discord? What the hell is Discord? I don't understand. So it's a community platform that's sort of like if you took a traditional internet message board and mashed it up with the voice chat and video sharing capabilities of Zoom. So it's a whole community platform. Our sex positive community that we built there is super welcoming and very active. Quite a few folks have ditched the the arguing and the unrest on Facebook to socialize on our Discord community instead, which is kind of flattering. We talk about sexuality, mental health, and off-topic stuff like recipes and funny memes. And we also host gaming nights right on the server every single week. And we do a lot more. After members have built rapport with the community, they're also invited to join Bow Chicka Wow Wow, the playground. That's a a not suitable for work 18 plus channel you can opt into where you can play, share sexy selfies and do a lot more, do some kinky stuff. So we'd love for you to join us. You can go on over and join at bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash Discord ASP. That's D-I-S-C-O-R-D ASP for American Sex Podcast. Also, don't forget to join us on Wednesday night. It's another free sex ed live stream on Get Vocal, 8 p.m. Pacific at bit.ly slash Sunny Get Vocal. It's S-U-N-N-Y, G-E-T-V-O-K-L. And if you subscribe to our channel and log in, you unlock all of our past streams that you can watch. We've covered things like electric play, mastering the G-spot, how to make pervertibles, erectile dysfunction, intro to BDSM, sex toys 101, erotic humiliation, dirty talk, virtual networking, sex during quarantine. I mean, there is so much there. So come on over. Also, American fuckers, you know what time it is, right? It's big welcome and heartfelt appreciation time to the new members of our Patreon family. Really, is that the last time you're going to hear me singing? I can't guarantee it. I just, I I don't know what's going to happen anymore. But I do want 
to give a big, huge welcome and heartfelt appreciation to Dylan, Heather, and Hannah for becoming American Sex Podcast Patreon supporters this past week. And you can join them. Just go to patreon.com slash American Sex. And you'll get stuff too, bonus stories from our guests, extra full-length episodes, all of our regular episodes early, American Sex Podcast stickers in the mail, a shout-out on the podcast, random surprises, video hangouts, and a whole bunch more. I've also added an off-menu bonus perk for our $10 and up patrons, and you're not going to see it listed on our Patreon page. You got to know about it to know what's happening. So I'm telling you right now, you're in the know. Every Tuesday, we're screening an episode of my TV show, Sex with Sunny Meg. Megatron that originally aired on Showtime. And we're doing a Q&A afterwards where we tell you about all the behind the scenes secrets. This week's episode on Tuesday features an online orgy and sex wrestling. I'll include the link that tells you more about this in the show notes for episode 130 at americansexpodcast.com. All right. Whew. American fuckers, this is it. Get on that couch. Lay back. Put those feet up. Think about your mother, your caregiver, your father. I don't know, the authority figures in your life. The most embarrassing thing that happened to you in grade school. Because this, this is your therapy session for this week. I'm serious. It's a good one. And you're going to come out of this a better person. Swear. I'll see you on the other side. Very excited, American fuckers. On the line is Ida Mandalay, and we're going to talk about attachment theory and attachment styles today, which I think is really important because if you're a regular listener, you know we've been delving a lot lately into mental health and what makes us tick as people and how that relates to our relationships and and how we get along with the outside world. So mm, this is one to add to your I don't know, self-study course catalog to make your lives better. Hi, Ida. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing great. I love that this is part of the catalog. It's yes, it's so important in the toolkit. So yes, put it in there. Yeah, yeah. And I really I look at, you know, when it comes to podcasting, or blog posts, or whatever kind of media that people consume, you know, there's, I'm, I'm sure you, as you know, a lot of people don't have access to formal therapy, they can't afford it, they don't have anyone in their area, whatever it is. So I've seen more and more as mental health becomes more of an important thing. The stigma is going away. People are actively seeking out ways to improve their emotional lives. I think this is so important. So thank you for talking to us about this today. Absolutely. And as I, I mean, you mentioned that not a lot of people have access, right? And so when we don't have other people we can rely on, finding resources ourselves is critical. And so I'm excited to be here talking about this with you. Yay. So, okay. I've heard a lot about attachment theory, probably more than the average, and I'm seeing it peppered in like pop media articles and things that you, I don't know, see on psychology today, but I don't know if people really get what attachment theory is and how it plays into our daily lives. So can you start there? What's attachment theory? Absolutely. So the first thing to keep in mind is attachment theory is a theory, right? So if it doesn't make sense to you, that's okay. If it's something that doesn't culturally resonate, that's also okay. These are all just okay. ways that we've tried to organize what we've seen in research, but also sort of in our, in our daily lives. Um, and all research is based on people's particular studies. So that being right. said, right? 
context matters. Um, attachment theory is this idea and set of ideas that relate to um, how we connect to other people and how we disconnect from other people. And so attachment theory says that the ways that we connect in our adult lives is affected by the ways that we learned to connect in our youth and when we were children. And that the ways that we bond to them, whether that's physically or emotionally, sets up this kind of template or blueprint for how we're mm-hmm. going to also attach to other important figures in the future. Um, attachment theory also talks about how there's this drive, this biological drive to connect in times of distress and that we are primed for that. But depending on what happens to us when we're kids and sort of as our lives evolve, the the drive might change its course or that we might change how we react to this idea of connecting or a desire to connect. And so mm-hmm. then you have different types of attachment as a result of that that you can kind of classify people into. And again, people, you know, sometimes hate labels. The way that I use them here is these are labels to help you kind of sort out general categories and then delve deeper into each of those. So let's not use these as, and now I am this one label for the rest of my life until I die. That's not how they work. So it's it's not, I took a quiz on the internet and it said I was blah, blah, blah. So that's what I am. Right, exactly. So, okay. so uh, you know, one of the misconceptions that happens a lot is that your attachment style is fixed, that you have it and you can't get rid of it. It is what it is. That's not true. So people can change their attachment styles or some of us use the, the term attachment behaviors and mm-hmm. they can experience different kinds of attachment with different people in their lives, which I especially like to highlight because I'm someone who works with a lot of non-monogamous clients. I myself am non-monogamous and kinky and all, you know, the queer weird fuckery. And so a lot of the literature about attachment is very couple-centric. It has presuppositions about what a family is supposed to look like. And I think that's trash. So um, okay. I want to make sure that this is accessible to everyone. Okay. So, and I, I have a lot of questions along those lines and I want to dive into that. However, I think it would be a good step to sort of explain what the main attachment styles are. And then we'll sort of dive into the nooks and, and crannies and situations and stuff. Perfect. Okay. So, um, think of it as the main two categories are secure attachment and insecure attachment. So I'll talk about secure first, and then I'll talk about the insecure styles. The idea of someone having a secure attachment style is that this person was someone who was probably nurtured when they were younger. They had caregivers, whether that's parents, grandparents, doesn't matter. They had people who responded when the child was in distress. They were able to care for the child without hovering. It's this very kind of, to me, it sounds really idyllic. <laughs> I'm like, who yeah. the fuck grew up like that? But okay. Yeah. Um, it's the parent that I tried to be, but maybe. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's like, it's a goal. So exactly. someone who has secure attachment has um, the ability to build intimacy with others with quote unquote relative ease. So it's not that it's easy necessarily, but it's also not the hardest thing in, in the world. Um, mm-hmm. These people don't go into severe distress when they're alone. They want connection, but they also have the capacity to be independent. Um, and they have a generally positive view of themselves and other people. And mm. um, the cycle of distress for someone who's securely attached usually goes like this. You have something distressing happening. There's some sense of anxiety that is produced in your body and in your brain. You look for connection to some kind of trusted, you know, resource, trusted person. They give you a good response and then your distress goes away or is calmed down. 
So that's the that's the kind of cycle that someone with secure attachment would face. So I have a question. Is this, you know, we're going to get into the other attachment styles, but this sounds like you were saying idyllic. This is how you imagine like every conflict will go. It's an easy resolution. Like in 30 minutes at the end of a sitcom, everyone's like, oh, we cleared that up. Um, is this what we should all strive to be? Is this one better than the other ones? Yes and no. <laughs> right. Okay. So- the the ideal in this case, uh, it sounds really idyllic when we talk about it so vaguely or, you know, without any specifics. Um, the secure attachment style or secure behaviors can be learned, can be done. I don't want to say it's not that hard because for some of us it extremely is, but it is doable, right? Okay. So finding distress and con- and seeking to connect and getting a good response doesn't have to be a five-minute thing. It can be, hey, we had a conversation, it went kind of all right, then we had maybe another one, and then that's the one that kind of resolved the issue or at least made me calm down enough to not have a freak out. So mm-hmm. security can be done, and it doesn't have to sound as, you know, leave it to beaver, as I just made it sound. Right, right. Um, but that's a lot of what, you know, if you if you read up on it, that's the way that a lot of books describe it. It sounds very fake to me. Um, right. So it doesn't, it ha- doesn't have to sound that fake. Absolutely. Okay. What are the other attachment styles? So the other styles, there's three main types. Um, and again, depending on what literature you read, they might have slightly different names. That's okay. They're kind of the same shit. Um, so you have the one that's called anxious. Sometimes that's called anxious preoccupied. Then you have uh, avoidant or dismissive avoidant. Again, they can, you can call that whatever. Um, and then there's disorganized or fearful avoidant. So those are the top okay. three. Um, okay. The main thing I want to say about them before we dive into each specific one is that all of them have their pros and cons. There are wonderful gifts that, you know, folks with anxious attachment have. There are also the things that make it difficult to live and difficult to relate when you have anxious Mm -hmm. attachment styles. Um, Same thing with dismissive avoidant folks or people who have that style in relationships. There are some things that you can do really well. I think that's me, by the way. So (laughs) if I ask more questions about that one, you just got some Freudian insight into my mind. So, yes. Perfect. (laughs) Same. So I can definitely talk from personal and professional experience. Awesome. (laughs) Yes. So the, the main shtick here is that someone who's anxious or preoccupied usually had some kind of primary caregiver in their life be kind of inconsistent with their care. Um, Mm -hmm. So they as adults or even as youth seek reassurance a lot. They have more a nervous vibe or nervous energy. They are afraid of being rejected and abandoned. And the way that that presents itself, because a lot of people are afraid of abandonment and rejection, but that fear is so strong that they sometimes grow so in need of intimacy and approval that they become really dependent on their partners or dependent on the people around them. Sometimes they act out of fear. They don't necessarily tell you what they need. They may be really passive aggressive, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So to them, the cycle that I mentioned earlier goes distress, anxiety, desire for connection up to here. It's the same cycle as the other one. However, Mm -hmm. here's where it goes to shit. They get a bad response, which doesn't necessarily mean that the other person responded poorly. It was a bad response to them. It felt bad. And so mm. that can be that they didn't get the reassurance that they wanted. It might mean that they were pushed away, whatever. 
they end up seeking connection again. And so sometimes they get stuck in a loop of, I didn't get what I needed. Let me try again. Let me try again. Let me try again. You know, what's interesting. It, this is making me think that like kind of the pop culture psychology of the love languages, you know, kind of come like maybe they're expecting a certain way to have been responded to because to them, that is what have has value. And, you know, the person responded to them in a way that that person thinks has value. It just didn't match up. Not that it was wrong. Okay. And that's an important thing to know, right? Because sometimes people read, you know, this information like, well, I'm not giving my partner a bad response. Why are they still upset? It's not actually about you necessarily being wrong or being mean. It's that it doesn't make sense to their system. And the, the, the stuff with attachment is that this is not just something that's going on in your brain. This is not just an intellectual concept. This is wired into your nervous system and just your entire body. So your entire body is trying to figure out how to stay safe, how to survive, and how to connect with others. We're social mm-hmm. mammals. We're literally driven to do that. So when we talk about this, it feels really important to highlight how body-based it is. This is not just a thing you can, I'm just going to think my way out of it. It's chill. Um, right. So that's that's really important, especially because then we have the dismissive avoidant people. That's me. Bing, 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 bing. Sounds like that might be you. <laughs> um, <laughs> so these are people who are freaked out by intimacy. And I say that, but a lot of people in, in, you know, in the sexuality field would be like, oh no, I love intimacy. What are you talking about? Um, the thing that's scary to a person with a more dismissive avoidance style is vulnerability often um, mm-hmm. and getting close to people because if they get close, that's when they can hurt you. <laughs> um, and so- <laughs> Yes, hello, reading my mind. <laughs> so these folks um, or people who have this style, um, find that self-sufficiency and um, independence is really important. They have a big fear of being overtaken or engulfed uh, by someone else or having someone else trying to control them. Sometimes that can be a fear of someone depending on you a lot. Um, and so folks who are more dismissive avoidant use distance they use suppression of their emotions or of intimacy. These are the people that, you know, might have a lot of casual sex and feel really good about it, but that can also bite them in the butt when someone else catches feelings, right? They're yeah. like, oh, I don't, I don't want that. Maybe I'll ghost them. Maybe I'll, you know, avoid the intimacy and the accountability around it too. Um, right. So these are folks where they can sound really confident and independent and sound great and can also be really cold or they can feel really robotic to be in a relationship with or if someone is sad, they might not really know what to do about that. They're like, well, that sounds like your problem. So I'm going to go. Yeah, yeah. And for some people, I know that for me, it was really hard to realize that that's the style that I had. Um, because it didn't from, you know, when I just did a cursory reading of attachment style stuff, I was like, oh, that's not, that's not me. That's not my family, whatever. And the, the origin story, right? I talked about the origin for the anxious person who has kind of inconsistent caregiving. For a dismissive avoidant person, the caregiving is usually neglectful. Um, and there's not a lot of care toward the child, period. I grew up in a household where I would not describe my parents that way. I would be like, oh, God, if anything, they were extremely overbearing, all up in my shit all the time. So how can this be, how can this be correct? And the thing that I realized after, after my own Goebbels therapy, um, <laughs> was that 
my parents were there for certain emotional needs and certain physical needs. There were a lot of emotional needs that they were not there for. Um, and mm-hmm. I later learned, you know, through digging through my family tree, why that was. Um, it was surprise, their own trauma. But <laughs> what happened yeah. is that there were a lot of emotions and nurturing things that I just didn't get as a kid. And so, yes, my parents were all up in my shit all the time, but it wasn't in a way that gave me emotional sustenance. And right, so right. I was like, well, fine, fuck all of you. I'm going to do this myself. I don't need you. Yeah. I never needed that connection anyway. Meh. Um, yeah. And so for folks that are more dismissive avoidant, compared to the anxious person who knows that they need connection, really, really wants it, the person who's dismissive avoidant kind of pretends that they don't need it at all. They're like, cool, you need like, that chair. Cool I don't need to school. sit. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't yeah. need that. It. It's fine. Um, they also can can look down on people who have needs, which is actually every human being. Um, and yeah, th- there's there's those challenges, right? But as I said, these are folks who can be really confident. They can do really well on their own. They can be really independent. Um, so that that's kind of the bright side of that. Yeah. For someone who's more anxiously attached, they can be really good at connecting to people. They can be really dependable. They can be really warm and caring and loving. So Everyone has their gifts. Everyone has the areas where they will fuck shit up, probably. Um, You know what's interesting? As I'm listening to you, and I'm also trying to put myself in the mind of the listener, because I know everyone listening is right now is like, oh, I'm kind of this, but I'm also kind of that. Like when you're reading astrology, you Mm -hmm. know, like, oh, that kind of applies to me. And as I'm listening, it's like, oh, yes, I'm dismissive avoidant. However, you know, like people who are into astrology are, oh, here's Ken. Hold on. Make noise. Come in. All right, I'm here. Okay, sit and let me finish My what I'm saying before I lose off. it. Okay, put in your earphones. Put in your headphones. Where are they at? Right here. They're all Hold tangled. on. Why are they tangled? I don't know. Here. Okay, so get your anxious, preoccupied uh, personality away. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> never mind, never mind. Wait, so, wait, quick. I need a lighter. Why? I don't have a lighter. Because I went to the pot store. Right and I'm there. I'm dying right there. for a joint right now. Oh, God. Seriously? Hold on. <laughs> Ada, do you care? I need my leaves. It's totally fine. <laughs> okay. So anyway, oh, as I was saying, maybe I just won't leave. cut this out. So we can just, because I've noticed. No, don't cut it out. I've noticed something with this pandemic, pe- things that people usually hide and that they're embarrassed about, people are letting it all go. One thing that kind of pisses me off is like, me? you know, no, no, no. People <laughs> who have been on like public assistance, Wait, you, you know, mm-hmm. like if you're on SNAP or you're uh, have Medicaid, like it was always such a shameful thing and people judged you for. It. And now every motherfucker out there is like, I'm on SNAP now. I'm on, like, it's and it kind of made me pissed being like the food stamp kid. Like, oh, everyone shamed me. Now it's cool. Um, right. But like, people are just like, I'm on, I'm with no makeup. I don't give a shit. We're in quarantine. Ken actually showed our unmade bed on a live stream the other day, which usually <laughs> that's like, <gasps> I know I would never do that. Yeah, so we're just like, whatever. Like our, all we're showing out. our whole asses. We don't well, care. I literally am <laughs> anyway. because my belt is still clean downstairs <laughs> and my fat boy clothes. I don't have any skinny boy clothes left. I got rid of all like eight. I lost 60 pounds and none of my clothes fit. Oh, my gosh. Time to and now I'm afraid naked. to go shopping. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, 
So uh, it, this makes me think about how people who are into, stri- into astrology, for example, they're like, oh, your, your rising sign is how you really appear to the world. But you know, your other planets are really how you are inside. I kind of feel like my rising sign is dismissive avoidant, but really deep down somewhere, I'm anxious preoccupied. <laughs> so can you be different things? Like, can you have little bits of each one? I know you said throughout your life, it can be fluid. But can you be two different ones at the same time, sort of. So it sounds like you're saying you're dismissive avoidant sort of behaviorally, but that a lot of the fears are of someone who's anxious and that you actually want connection. Here's the fucking secret, y'all. People who are dismissive actually just want connection too. They just gave up on Holy getting it. Shit. <laughs> oh my God. Okay, that explains I'm, so You guys much. are speaking Greek to me. You have started you, the- Because like, you missed the first 20 minutes. Avoidant you know, just, is. just per, just go along. Just, I don't want to pretend. I want to know. <laughs> Okay. What, what, so what's dismiss and avoidant? I don't know. There are different personalities. Should we do just a quick primer to get kind of yes. up to speed and yeah, we'll cut we this out? Okay. Yeah, totally. Okay. So I'll give you, I'll give you the quickie, the quickie version. So attachment theory, you know, posits that the way we connect when we're kids influences or builds a template for how we connect when we're adults. So this relates to, you know, how our caregivers gave us care. Um, secure is a style where you have a certain ease of building intimacy. You don't worry about being alone very much, but you also want to connect to people. That's the like, ah, holy grail for a lot of people. And then you have the insecure styles. So we were just talking earlier about anxious preoccupied. These are the folks with more nervous energy, reassurance seeking. Um, they really fear abandonment and rejection and sort of want to work to get the, get the connection. They're, they're not giving up on getting that connection. Dismissive avoidant are the folks where they have given up (laughs) on getting that connection and are like, you know what? Every man for himself. Fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. I got me. I don't need anyone else to get me, you know, whatever. Bye. Um, so, and yeah. And now we're a fearful avoidant, which we haven't gotten to yet. So just wait for that one, Ken. Yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, at the, at the core of it, Sunny, here, that's the fucking secret. Everyone actually needs care and connection, but the ways that we learned to deal with it are different, right? So for someone who's dismissive avoidant, they do want connection. They just didn't get it early enough. Usually this is usually an old thing, but they don't get it. And rather than keep trying, they just give up. That's the, the, honestly, that's one of the things that made me realize that that was my style. Um, and that that was kind of the, the summation of all my worries in terms of relationships, because I was reading a book and I was like, ah, oh, I'm still not sold on this. It's not that intimacy freaks me out. What are you talking about? But then I read, um, about one of the initial studies that launched a lot of this attachment theory stuff and the way that they described the, the study subjects, they, this was a study done on babies that kind mm-hmm. of launched all this. And they were looking at when you put this, you brought in a baby with a mom into this new room that they'd never been in with, the, you know, stuff that they could explore. And they would have, you know, they would study how the baby's doing when the mom is there, how the baby does when the mom leaves, how the baby does when the mom comes back. I remember seeing this in like psychology videos and stuff, I think. Yes, yeah. it's very, it's been, you know, put in all the psych classes for a million years at this point. So those babies that looked really chill when the mom left and looked really chill, even ignored her when the mom came back. I was like, yeah, that's totally me. If I lose a connection, fine, whatever. If it comes back, great. Um, the way that they described it was 
the baby externally looked fine, but when we measured the baby's cortisol levels, when we did studies about the biological stuff that was going on as the baby was alone, that baby had pretty similar cortisol levels to the babies that were screaming their heads off. And oh. so just because you couldn't see the baby crying doesn't mean the baby wasn't having a biological reaction. And so I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> okay, so you I, just... I, I, have, I have a quick question. Yeah. Is, is any of this environmental or is it all come from how you, like from parent or caregiver? Environmental, how, how do you mean? Like from oh, trees just, is, and it, anything or? external, Anything external from a caretaker? Like like extreme yeah. events or like is any of that form this or yes. is it all about how you bond with a parent? So this is about how you bond with caregivers. So they can be parents, they can be grandparents, whatever. But these have to be pretty important figures in your care. Um, right. So they are influenced by the environment, right? So if you are someone who was born while your parent was in an abusive relationship, their ability to connect with you is deeply affected by that relationship. Or conversely, if you were someone who was raised in a household where there was zero fucking money and your parents had to just always be out working, even when they tried to connect with you, maybe it was so scarce that they weren't able to be there for you in the way that you needed as a kid. And so mm -hmm. the environment and trauma and natural disasters absolutely affect, affect it. But at its core, it's about this idea of how you bond with you know your species basically yeah oh, that's and now interesting i wonder if we did that to our kids then because oh, we were totally. working so much yeah totally <laughs> totally um so when bringing that up it makes me think you know if you had different caretakers like some people have you know you have a mom you have a dad maybe you have a daytime caretaker or you know a grandma that watches you during the day or what like in my situation i had a mom who was very hands off very neglectful very um, you know, didn't pay much mind to me at all. And then I had a grandma who took care of me up until the age of eight. And like, off and on, I would live with her. And then I would live with my mom. And they're very opposite. She was very caring. She seemed like the type that would nurture more of that secure attachment. Um, And I would say she was, you know, maybe 40% of my early caretaking. So can you get different, vastly different attachment styles from different caretakers all at the same time. Yeah, you can, they can attach to you and with you in different ways. Absolutely. So and that's why this is limited, right? So the idea is not that you find one attachment style, and then that's it. Look at your the idea behind this to me, right, as a therapist, and as a person is, I want people to look at this as the place to start and then continue and nuance their conversations. Because okay. this kind of thing asks you to look at your history. It asks you to look at your family. It asks you to look at how you connect to people now, if you're non-monogamous, or even if you're not. Um, but especially if you have you know, s more than one deeply invested, connected relationship in your life, how do you relate to those people differently, right? I'm right. dating multiple people, and the way that my attachment style manifests with each of them is different, even though at my core, my general fears are the same, they're more of the dismissive avoidance style, the way that my behavior works is very different depending on who I'm relating to. So with some partners... Ah. From the beginning, I felt pretty fucking secure. And with some folks, my my desire to kind of reject them goes into overdrive. And I'm like, well, got got to keep that under control. Um, but it depends because it's relational, right? So if you're mm -hmm. relating to person A versus person B, stuff is obviously going to change. It's a different human. 
Okay. Okay. So now we have one more attachment style that we didn't really delve into. What's the last yes, major the attachment style? The fearful avoidant one. That one often doesn't get discussed because people are like, that one's difficult. That one's the really hard erratic one, which I think is just really shitty shaming language. So fearful oh. avoidant um, or disorganized is a is a hard style to deal with because it can be so unpredictable. Um, so it is the folks where as children, they usually experience trauma or their caregivers were themselves traumatized or abusive so that there was this f- issue of fright without solution. The person who is supposed to give you the the care is also the person who's scaring you. So you're trying mm. to get close to them, but also trying to move away. And it's this double bind. It's really shitty. Um, and so as adults- That sounds like me. <laughs> I, I was thinking that too. I'm glad you said it though. <laughs> My mom abused me. Yeah, it's (laughs) because I wanted to bond with you and tell you how I felt, but I was also scared. No, wait, that would be you. Okay, so anyway, (laughs) but yeah, and so that kind of childhood often or can sometimes lead to this vibe as an adult of I want to come close to you, but then I'm gonna get away. I'm gonna seem really clingy and needy, and then ignore you for three weeks. I'm gonna, you know, have both high avoidance and high anxiety. And so for some. Nailed it. (laughs) So when you're in a relationship with someone like that or who has that style with you, at least, it can be really, you know, you can be really unsure about what to do because you're like, okay, you want closeness. I'm giving you the closest. Now you're freaked out. Hold on. Okay. I got to get away. Oh, now we get close again. What the fuck is happening? So it can feel erratic. um, And that, you know, that's that style. Um, A lot of people talk about it with a lot again with a lot of stigma because it has some level of unpredictability but just like any of the other insecure styles it can change and it can be modified so the way that i look at it is it's like a dance um with some people dancing up close the entire night feels great with some people you want to dance a little bit further away and with some people you want to get close and then get far get close and then get far and as long as you know what fucking dance you're dancing it makes it easier. But if you're trying to dance salsa while someone else is trying to dance like swing, you're going to have a messy time. Um, And so what I suggest to people is start to look at this material and this information, start to kind of plot where you are, what are some of your concerns? um, What are some of the things that you might need to work on and encourage the people that you're in relationship with, whether that's dating or something else to look at their own too, because the different pairings will need different strategies. Um, Mm -hmm. But if you know your stuff, you can also guide someone through figuring out theirs a little bit more, right? I'm someone who's a therapist. I'm a sex educator. Some of the people I date know this shit. Some of the people are like, what? Attachment is who? I do not know her. And so, mm-hmm. cool, I'll, I'll give them some information about it so we can figure it out together. Well, first of all, Ida, I want to thank you because our therapist had to cancel our teletherapy appointment <laughs> this week. But we just got it. Like, thank you. Okay, so... <laughs> So now that we know the different attachment styles, and we know this is like the lens through which we experience not only our relationships, but especially conflict and things that kind of don't feel great. um, Before we get into how this affects our relationships, I want to specifically zero in on how do these attachment styles affect the way we express our eroticism, how we act in the bedroom, how we approach sex, 
and go there. So yes. how? So similarly to how I mentioned earlier, I'm just going to pull those concepts into the sex realm. Someone who's dismissive avoidant might be really confident in the bedroom. And I say might, right? Because attachment styles are just one part of the puzzle of how humans mm-hmm. fuck, how humans connect, right? So this is not a predictor 100%. But someone who's more dismissive avoidant um, might be really confident that if you have a good time, that's really great. If you know you don't have as good of a time, it's not going to crush them. But if mm-hmm. you're someone who's more anxious, the resilience toward other people not having a good time is usually lower because it puts them in a scary situation of if this person isn't having a nice time, they might leave me. They might not want to connect with me anymore. So anxious, preoccupied folks might in, you know, on the, on the con side of things might be really, um, again, sort of clingy or they might be like, is that okay? Is that okay? Do you like it? Do you like it? Do you like it? Like 20 times, um, which is not everyone's cup of tea. Uh, but also, mm-hmm. on the flip side, they can be really giving partners. They can be really invested in their partner's pleasure and can be really satisfying to fuck um, because of that. While someone who's more dismissive avoidant might be okay at, with some level of conflict and, you know, be like, all right, your problem is your problem. But that might also make them kind of selfish. Um, and right. that might also make them hard to connect or you know, if someone's, if someone's getting triggered in the middle of sex, they might have a really hard time being present for that. Um, but you know, on the gift side, they might also be down to show off their sexual skills and not take it super personally. If someone's, if someone's triggered right. in the middle of sex, cause it's not about them. Um, right. So gifts and, you know, things like that, we have to take we have to take the good with the bad here. Um, for right, fearful right. avoidant, because it is someone who has both high avoidance and high anxiety, you kind of get a little bit of both, right? You get a little bit of the distance. You get a little bit of the closeness. It's the one that's a little bit harder to categorize. Um, but for someone who's secure, right? We were talking about insecure, but someone who's secure is someone who can do kind of all of these things as the case needs. They might be able to be very giving in bed, but also might have an easy and good time receiving. Um, and they might right. be, you know, expecting sex to maybe go well rather than going into it with a deep fear that it's going to horribly go wrong at the first second or at the first sight of trouble. Is that making right. sense? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. So, all right. This makes me think... You know, we're all in. No, I'm wondering what it means that I'm a fearful avoidant Scorpio. I know. Throw a whole new level (laughs) under it. it. I know. I know. Fuck. (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna go get a fist fight with an old lady. Now I'm gonna come love you. Yeah. Someone. (laughs) Someone needs to like meld attachment styles with astrological chart reading. Oh my god! Perfect. Yes. That would. Yeah, that would be a thing. Um, Okay, so I'm thinking right now, most of us, especially in the United States, are under shelter-in-place orders or we're self-quarantining or whatever it is. And as a result, you have got, uh, you know, people, especially who are sheltered in place with their partners and they're in each other's faces 24-7 and we are not used to this. And plus, we're under stress. We're experiencing trauma together. Our finances are in the toilet. You know, finances just fuck whole relationships up. (laughs) And um, so now is a time where sometimes those little 
flaws and problems in relationships that we could sort of brush off or be a little passive aggressive about and roll our eyes and go on with our lives suddenly have microscopes on them. And they're fucking shit up for people. So how can in this specific situation, where we're in each other's faces, we're kind of forced to do relationship work right now, like we have no choice. How are these relationship styles affecting people in these situations? And what are some of the things we can do right now or some of the things we can zero in on and pay attention to that will help us cope through this fucked up relationship time? Yes. The main thing, honestly, is figure out what you and your partners need out of that attachment dance. Because if one of you needs distance and the other one needs closeness, just leaving it alone and hoping it goes well is probably not going to work out because one of Mm. you is going to be vying for the distance. One of you is going to be vying for the closeness. If you're both seeking closeness, that can sometimes work, but that can also sometimes mean you're stuck in a conversation for seven hours that you both kind of want to be in, but both kind of want to get out of, and you don't seem to find the way out. Um, Relatedly, if you're both seeking distance in a conflict, uh, you might just never deal with your shit and spend 10 years in a relationship and then be like, wow, that was deeply unsatisfying the entire time. So, you know, I was in that relationship. That was my first marriage. Yes, I was the the same thing. We never argue. We're like, we get along so well. We've never argued. It's because none of us, we neither wanted to talk about things and we had so many problems. We just ignored them and put smiles on our faces. If your relationship doesn't have conflict ever, it means you're not talking about the real shit so you need to fix that because yeah. either you fix it or the, or life is yeah. going to fix it for you and by fix it i mean fuck it up so my my main mm-hmm. piece of advice is start actually figuring out what you need and i'm a i'm a win-win kind of person i think there's so many situations where there's winners and there's losers where can everyone could just be a winner so one of the things that i have offered to clients a lot and i work with couples and relationships here's two things that if you're not doing them you should already you, sh- you should try hi i'm amy and i'm april and we're co-hosts of the shameless sex podcast we're going to answer the pleasure podcast question of the month what is our number one sex tip for quarantine it's simple y'all create a daily pleasure practice even if you're not feeling sexy or turned on you got to make time to stay connected to your pleasure even if it's only for a few minutes a day sex toys are a great way to fast track your pleasure and get you there when you want it want to learn more become part of the shameless sex revolution and check out the shameless sex podcast ciao for now spring has sprung oh wait has it it's really hard to tell with all those weeds growing all over the place you know it might be time for some spring cleaning look i'm not saying you have to completely pull up everything and till the whole garden but come on keep the bush trimmed at least also you have figured out that i'm not really talking about foliage right i'm talking about your pubes manscaped has forever changed the grooming game with their perfect package 3.0 kit It comes with the Essential Lawnmower 3.0, which is a waterproof cordless body trimmer. Plus, it has a ton of other liquid formulations to round out your manscaping routine. This third-generation trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce manscaping accidents. Inside the perfect package, you'll also find the Manscaped Crop Preserver, an anti-chafing ball deodorant and moisturizer. Subscribe to the perfect package and get a new replacement blade refill for your lawnmower trimmer delivered to your door every three months. Plus, 
for a limited time, subscribers get two free gifts, the Shed Travel Bag, valued at $39, and the patented high-performance reduced chafing Manscaped Boxer Briefs. Right now, you can get 20% off and free shipping with the code SUNNY, S-U-N-N-Y, at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping at M-A-N-S-C-A-P-E-D.com with the code SUNNY. Hey, it's spring cleaning, baby, and your balls will thank you. One is scheduling a... You know, and, and you can adjust the suggestion, obviously, but schedule a weekly relationship, business, and household management meeting. This is a meeting where I want you to ask each other, you know, low lights and highlights from the week. Um, express some kind of appreciation for your partner. Like, man, this week I'm really, you know, happy that you gave me a massage or I'm really glad you took out the trash, whatever. Some kind of appreciative piece. Um, whereas the first one is more about, you know, your nags and brags generally, not necessarily about the relationship. Then I want you to think about, okay, what is what is the stuff that's been on our minds about our relationship, our household that we should deal with? You know, that maybe means, oh, we haven't filed our taxes yet. We need to put that on the calendar and the schedule. Or, oh, I realize that, you know, I've been feeding the dog every day and you haven't fed him and I'm starting to get upset about it. Whatever. Some The, the business, the things that you need to take Are care of. Are you watching us? Are you watching us? <laughs> That would be creepy, <laughs> but, you know, if you're into it, just let me know. <laughs> we can consensually figure that out. <laughs> but yeah, no, that, that's the thing. Honestly, relationship, like as a couples and relationships counselor, I'm like, look, humans are very beautiful, complex, unique. Absolutely. And also we're fucking predictable in so many ways. It's it, like when I'm looking at it from the outside, it seems, oh, that's so simple. That's so obvious. But when you're in the middle of it, it's really hard. That's why sort of, I have a job, right? It's easy from the outside to be able to diagnose and treat um, things that when you're in the midst of it is really difficult. So I want to do, you know, I would suggest that yeah. weekly meeting. The last thing I would say for the agenda, and you can, you know, figure out your own agenda, but those are some of the elements that I would include. The question of what have we been avoiding talking about? What's the elephant in the room? Um, doesn't mean you have to deal with it that very second, but at least naming that it's there can be really important. That mm. is a strategy, sort of have this meeting. It's a strategy to make sure you have intentional connection, especially for people who live together sometimes. And I live with one of my partners currently. Sometimes they can just be like, oh, you're always there. So I'll, I'll talk about it later. And then later, 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 later never comes and you didn't deal with it. So this yeah. is an intentional, regular time that provides you know, a space to have the conversations that you might not be able to have, or you might have issues bringing up otherwise. So in the absence of figuring out other shit of yours and your partner, at least have that weekly meeting. The other thing yeah. I would suggest is um, for folks to, if they are, or when they are in a conflict moment, to have consensual breaks. And those breaks should look something like this. First of all, anyone can call for a break, kind of at any time, um, but you want to be aware if someone is, you know, using breaks every five minutes or using breaks to interrupt their partner. Those are, th that's not a good, healthy use of a break, but you can definitely mm -hmm. have breaks in conflict. That is actually really healthy. For a break to work, this is what it should look like. So you should have a range of five to 15 minutes for your first break. After you come back, you check in. Hey, is it cool to come back to this conversation? Do we need more time? If one 
or both people or, you know, all people involved need more time, you take another five mm-hmm. to 15 minute break, you know, and, and you default to the longest time period that someone needs. So if one partner needs five, one partner needs 15, do the 15. Um, after the right. second break, you come back, you check in. If people are still not feeling ready, you do not continue that argument, ideally, right? And sometimes you can't do it, but ideally you say, okay, it sounds like right now is not the time to have this. Can we schedule sometime in the next 24 hours to have this? When is that going to be? Where is that going to be? Because mm-hmm. when you have a prolonged argument, usually it just spirals out of control and shit does not go smoothly. So save yourselves the trouble. You don't deserve to be in a shitty conflict for an extended amount of time. Uh, it doesn't help you. It doesn't help your people. It's just not a good strategy. Um, so taking breaks like that serves both. And actually, let me go back for a second. If people are ready after this first or second break to resume the conversation or the conflict, you can start it over. Like you can continue to have mm-hmm. it for a while. Um, if it goes beyond 45 minutes, I would check in. Like, is this the best time to have this conversation? Why do I suggest okay. these things? People need breaks to regulate their emotional and nervous system. So if you have someone who is anxiously attached, um, having a break or having a break with no idea of when you're going to get back to discussing the topic can be really scary. It can be also really annoying. Like, man, I keep bringing this up and we keep not having the, the stuff resolved. So for the person who really is seeking the connection and would be scared if it went away, having the breaks timed, having them be sort of relatively small and having a, okay, in the next 24 hours, when are we going to have this conversation? Gives them the security and the safety to tolerate being away from their partner or tolerate leaving something on the back burner. Because Mm. folks who need the reassurance sometimes just are not going to feel okay until that shit is resolved. But if they know when it's going to be resolved or when you're going to be able to talk about it, that can calm their nervous system down. Alternatively, or relatedly, I guess, for the person who wants distance, who starts to shut down in the conflict or starts to get really quiet or starts to zone out, having distance can give their brain and their nervous system a break to reset. So usually that person goes off somewhere else. Sometimes it means a different room to distract or do whatever they need to do to kind of soothe themselves to then come back into the conversation from a more regulated place. And I talk about regulation, right? So emotional regulation and dysregulation terms that are very important. Mm -hmm. I encourage people to look them up if they have more questions. Um, But when people are in conflict, that fucks with our nervous system, right? And when our nervous system is fuckity, our ability to reason, our ability to listen, our memory, all that shit goes down. So, It's basically like saying, okay, cool. You want to have a fight? We're going to take all your weapons away. We're going to take all your skills away. And you're just going to be piles of mush trying to fight with each other. Good luck. Right? No one would want to go into a fight like that on, you know, with no skills, no weapons, la la la. You would, it would just be a mess. So similarly, I don't want to posit conflict as a war, but in conflict, (laughs) it can feel like a war and you can feel like super, uh, you know, aggro about it. So, If you are trying to have an important conversation, you deserve to have all your skills at your disposal and your partner does too. It will make it go better. So those are the two main tools that I would encourage people to have. Um, Also identify, you know, usually in conflict, do you need distance or do you need closeness? Are you the partner 
who's like, I need to run the fuck away right now. I need a break. I'm going silent. I can't hear this anymore. Like I'm starting to zone out. Or are you the partner that feels like you're always having to try to drag your partner back in? Um, are you someone who's in a partnership where you both are kind of doing the same thing at each other? Right. You're both mm-hmm. kind of stonewalling or, or being silent and not talking about it. Those all generally require this, the, the same things. Like you need some level of closeness, some level of distance, just in different quantities. But the, the prescription is kind of the same. Wow. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, impl- successfully employing these techniques in your relationship consistently for the long term sounds like it can, like you said, there's no like, oh, this attachment style is better. They all have their ups and downs. But like, if I was going to voluntarily pick one, I'd pick secure. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so when it comes to like trying to actively change our attachment style, a, how hard or easy or even possible is is that? And B, are some of the things you just described ways to get there? Uh, what I described are parts of, of getting there, absolutely. Um, in terms of research and how easy it is to change, there's not a ton of research on some mm-hmm. of that. Um, but research does say that it is possible and that, you know, there was some research and I think attached one of the books about this. It's like 25% of people, you know, if given the opportunity, blah, 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 change their attachment style to secure. Honestly, I don't super care about the statistics because often a lot of these studies are not done on the communities that I work in or care about. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I would say is that it is possible to change. Is it going to be easy? Fuck no. Is it going to be insurmountable? Also, fuck no. It is doable. It is not going to be easy. But it also doesn't mean that it has to be, you know, the hardest thing you've ever done. Um, right. And the reason I clarify that is because this is so embedded in us, right? This is about how we see conflict, how we see ourselves, how we show our love and care for other people, what we believe we deserve, how we're okay or not okay being vulnerable. This is about our nervous system's uh, management of threat. So a lot of this is also really tied to trauma and trauma theory. So if you're someone who doesn't know shit about trauma, that is actually a great place to start. Peter Levine, Mm -hmm. for example, is an author that talks a lot about the body and how trauma affects it. Um, and I encourage everyone to read that because I guarantee that if you don't have trauma, you know someone who does. And if you don't have it, it's probably just not yet because we right. all live in this world that is a fucking mess <laughs> and we are collectively living through a trauma right now. That doesn't mean you have to have PTSD. It just means that you're living through a really rough event that is overwhelming your capacity to cope with it. That's what you trauma know- is. Yeah, you know what makes me, this makes me wonder, and I don't know if there is a concrete answer, because you said this is all theoretical, there's a lot of stuff we don't know, but maybe in your opinion, how much of our attachment style is dictated by what we go through generationally, culturally, reason I think of this is today on Twitter, uh, Richard Dawson, the host of Family Feud back in the 70s and 80s is trending, not the atheist. No, no, no. And, and he's trending because people who are millennials and what's now Gen Z are seeing the way he used to kiss the contestants. And they're like, Oh, my God, this is horrible. And I'm like, Yes, it's horrible. But if you lived through the 70s and 80s, like, 
you know, grownups were smoking in the play place in McDonald's. Nobody gave a shit. Nobody. I mean, there was so much fucked up shit societally and culturally at that time. Mm-hmm. So me growing up as a Gen Xer, how much of my attachment style is just dictated by the environment that I grew up in? Well, it's dictated by the environment because it dictates how other people related to you, right? Ah, and how you felt yeah. safe or not. And so for people, you know, what will cue their system to feel danger will, will indeed vary generationally. The other thing as far as intergenerational yes. transmission is that our parents' abilities or our caregivers' abilities to connect to us as their children was affected, surprise, by how their caregivers connected to them. Right. And yeah. so when I dug into my family history, I was like, there's there's some trauma here that literally no one is talking about. I can smell it. I am trained to smell it. And it is here. I did some digging. I'm a good little snoop. And I found stuff. Right. And I found ways that yeah. my family line had experienced pretty significant trauma that I was like, oh, this is why, you know, my mom <laughs> is the way she is. This is why my parents are available for some of these things and not others. And, you know, for me, the impact of religion was also pretty big because I grew up studying with the Jehovah's Witnesses and there were some things that my parents were not able to emotionally be present for because religion dictated that if they were present, that was sinful, right? Like, Uh I'm a queer weirdo motherfucker and they were not down with that. Um, And so they were not able to give me Some of the things that they gave me in early childhood, right? A lot of love, a lot of information, a lot of closeness. Some of that had to be essentially taken away because it didn't fit their framework of what was right and wrong. So Mm. things like religion are also a big deal here. Interesting. Yeah, because I was thinking, you know, when I was talking on Twitter today, for, for me, I was like, we grew up, not just me, but like especially people who were socialized as girls and women grew up um, learning to turn off their like internal warning systems when like something's wrong or like creepy Richard Dawson kissing you on the lips and pulling you close. And maybe your initial reaction in your body is like, I'm not comfortable with this. But just the way society was at the time, we were learned to like shut that off. Absolutely. And just be like, no, it's fine. And then I think of my like, you know, avoidant. And I'm like, oh, my God, is it? Ah, but you're right. You know, my my mom grew up in an environment that raised her to support those that way of thinking. And yeah, so oh, absolutely. Okay, there's so and, much. And there's, yeah, there, there's a piece there, too. Right. And part of what you're talking about is, again, you know, regulation and safety cues for your body. Um, being told that you need to not feel a certain thing. And if we're looking at sort of gendered ideas and expectations under sort of the world that we live in right now, generally the expectation is that women or people who are presumed to be women are the more anxious, preoccupied type. You know how so many people are like, oh, women are so clingy. Women are so needy. They want you to tell you you love them all the time. And it's men who are usually coded as dismissive, avoidant, cold, you know, very casual, unempathetic, blah, 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 mm-hmm. um, which, you know, has some has some bearing given what we're taught to do and how we're taught to behave. So it's also really interesting when I get couples where there's a, a flip in that script where you get a woman or someone who, you know, perceived as a woman um, who is more dismissive avoidant because people expect that less. And also people expect men to not be sensitive. And so when you get a couple where there's a more sort of 
cold, dismissive woman and a sort of very sensitive guy, that can that can be sometimes confusing for for people to deal with because they're like, I don't know. This is not what I expected in the first place. So what do I do with this? How do I tell these people to fix their relationship without being a shitty feminist, for example, right? Or, you know, I don't want to silence this woman, but also the way that she is talking is actually really detrimental to their relationship. So Mm. threading that needle can be really tricky. Honestly, that's why I love the work I do. I'm like, ooh, that needle's a challenge. Let's make that happen. Yeah. Um, So, okay, thought, wrapping up, I'm like, I'm chewing on so much of this. I'm like, oh my, seriously, this is like serving as my therapy session for this week that I'm, I'm not even kidding. This is amazing. So my my out there, you know, thoughts are like, okay, I like to use BDSM and role play at, therapeutically, you know, p- trying on different roles helps me or the people I'm playing with um, explore acting a different way, responding in a different way in a very safe container. Mm-hmm. So what would you say if I was like, hmm, you know, let's say, you know, this is my I'm dismissive avoidant, I'm going to construct a BDSM role play where I play someone who maybe has secure attachment, or I play someone that has my partner's attachment style, which is a fearful avoidant. Mm-hmm. What would you think of that as kind of a non traditional way to explore different ways of being? Absolutely. I would say A, it works. B, it works. C, if you're kinky, you should try it, right? Okay. Also, you know, not to be prescriptive, do whatever you want. I'm not your parent, blah, blah, blah. But you actually hit up a, a really good point. And this is why part of um, BDSM can work really well for this. A lot of what BDSM is, is erotic theater. It's role play. You're, you're putting on different roles and it allows your body to actually start working through some shit and it gives it it makes it not just an intellectual exercise right it gets your body in situations where it has to experience fear it has to experience distress and figure out how to either by yourself or the partner calm that down so Mm -hmm. what i would sell when you know what i would tell people if they're trying to use kink on this is a role play and improv super useful for that very reason right you're mm-hmm. trying to figure out either what it's like to be in someone else's shoes or what it would be like to be in your own shoes but maybe in a healthier way um other kind of kinky or ds homework that i suggest is having people you know connect while while in a way that's hard for them right so maybe mm-hmm. for someone who's more dismissive avoidant it is hard for them to stay present when they are in conflict because all they want to do is run away or shut down, pushing that a bit. And here's the clue. It's a bit at a time, right? Going from zero to 60 is actually super inadvisable because that just pushes you out of your ability to, to not just hold that for later, but also manage. And it can cause a lot of harm. So mm-hmm. when you're doing this with kink, I would say go slow, as slow as you need to, and if you're like, mm, go on the slower end of whatever it is that you are considering, because it's not going to hurt you to go slow. It can absolutely hurt you to go too fast. Um, right. The other piece too, right? If someone needs a lot of reassurance seeking, one of the things that you want to do is help them build the capacity, whether that's yourself or someone else, but help that person build the capacity to also just reassure themselves, Right. Right. Um, and so for the person who has a hard time reassuring themselves, who's seeking it externally, 
I tend to partner with a lot of those folks, <laughs> not exclusively, <laughs> but a lot of people have that tendency. And I have, I get so much joy out of making them do brag lists. So it's a, you know, we do a, a weekly, I want you to give me five to seven brags about things that you're proud of having completed or done or ways in which you are a badass. And I will have them write them down. I will have them read them out loud to me. And psychically and physiologically what's happening is that they are using their brains and their bodies to self-affirm in the presence of someone else. They are getting practice with that. And again, the more that you do it, the easier it is and the more it sinks in. So right. honestly, these are, these are therapy skills, right? Like I do this with my clients. I just know it works. And so I do it in my personal life too and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah, I'm all about like blurring the line between therapy and kink. Like that might be my kink. Um, <laughs> like, so th my this fit. has been fucking totally, totally. This has been fucking amazing. Um, I I'm very glad that I'm the editor of this podcast, so I can like listen back to this a number of times and maybe take notes because maybe our therapist is like, you need to have weekly meetings and did it, and we haven't done I that. Thinking, yet. I'd like to have weekly meetings. Uh, I know. We we, she said we should, and then we totally forgot about it, and we have <laughs> next Wednesday, so know, we got to busy. Yeah. So maybe that's that's and my scared. reminder. We've been busy and scared. <laughs> Avoid. I mean, avoid. who hasn't been feeling that? <laughs> so actually, one of the things I want to really quickly go back to, because I missed one, Yeah. Um, for, for kind of kink or DS or things like that, um, and this, you know, you can use in, in a non-kinky way, too. Um, I talked about the brag list, right, for someone who is more mm -hmm. on the anxious side. For someone who's more on the dismissive side, um, doing some kind of physical connection work, whether that's feet rubbing or hand holding or any kind of thing that involves bodies touching, um, obviously paying attention to people's trauma needs and trauma histories and whatever. Um, these are the kinds of people who generally will pull away, right? They will start to pull away physically and curl inwards and also get away from you mentally. So the, the thing that they need to work on mm -hmm. that I've worked on, for example, is having closeness while in conflict. Um, and having that feel doable and safe. So mm. the way that you figure out what you need to do kinkily or sexually is what are the things that are scary to me? What are the things that I am worried will go away if I don't act a certain way? Those are a good starting point to figure out, okay, this is the challenge that right. I want to start adjusting. Mm. I love it. Fucking love it. So those of you <laughs> listening along, who are either in quarantine with your partners, or maybe you're doing this virtually, you know, because you can you can do some kink scenes like or like sit and have your family meetings like do it in a kink sex way, do it in a real like I'm an adult sitting at a desk with my clothes on doing therapy kind of way. Um, there's lots of great ideas here. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm excited to see, you know, yeah. people evolve and how they can process conflict. Totally, totally. So um, where can we get more of you? Because I think everyone needs more of you now. <laughs> so as long as you got my name, it is ridiculously easy to find me on the internet. So I'm on Instagram under, you know, Aida Mandule. Um, I'm on Twitter as Neuron Bomb. I have my website. I'm on Facebook, all the things. So if people, you know, want to see what I'm up to or, you know, I usually am yelling about things on the internet, sharing information, writing blog posts, just, you know, connect with me on the internet. That's where I mostly live at this point. Awesome. Yay. Any last words, anything that we need to know that you want to leave our listeners with about attachment styles before we go? 
Absolutely. If you're resistant to looking at your past, that makes sense. But that past isn't going away. And the sooner you start dealing with it, the sooner you can start having healthier relationships and you deserve it. Oh, that's so good. Heartwarming. So, good. so listen, American <laughs> fuckers, do it. Do it. Do it. it was funny because you, when you were talking about um, the babies and the psychology videos, I was like, that's my inner child. The one that yes. seems so cool that's not crying and I want to hug her. So yeah, thank you. <laughs> most people would most people wouldn't be shitty in an argument to like a six year old. And when we're in an argument, it's actually our inner like six, twelve, fifteen year olds fighting with each other. So sometimes remembering yeah. that that's who we're talking to is is the game changer that we need to be like, okay, maybe I shouldn't be a huge asshole right now. Oh, I'm gonna next time we're having conflict, Ken. I'm just gonna imagine you a seven year old Ken and be like, oh, okay. <laughs> Well, thank you. Thank you. This has been a great conversation. And we need to have you on again to talk about more stuff because you just your brain, your brain. Um, But I promise I won't be late next next time. It was only the pandemic that made me late. (laughs) The pandemic made me do it. I know exactly. (laughs) Until next time. Thank you so much, Ida. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to American Sex. To keep up with Ken and I, we'll first make sure you watch our TV show, Sex with Sunny Megatron, on Showtime. Then visit SunnyMegatron.com. There you can learn more about us, read our blog, peruse our workshop calendar, or hire us. For what? Well, either for private coaching, or to book us to teach at your event or university, or as sex and relationship writers for your publication. Oh, and don't forget, we're on social media, too. I'm the super social one, so you can find me as Sunny Megatron on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, my YouTube channel, and a bunch of other places. But if you want to get me on Snapchat, you got to look for Sunny underscore Megatron, and you can follow Ken on Twitter at at tag SciChicken. That's P-S-Y-C-H-I-C-K-E-N. Also, please support us by shopping with the affiliates and sponsors from our breaks. And if you contribute to our Patreon, we're going to love you forever. Well, we're going to love you forever anyway, but just go with it. Lastly, if you like this broadcast, tell people about it. Tweet it, Facebook status it, and rate it on iTunes and other platforms. Thanks, friends. We'll see you next week on American Sex.